Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and I'm really excited to share my interview with you today with designer and founder Sam Murkowski of Manhattan Nights. Sam has a really fun story, and he really walks us through everything, nitty-gritty detail of how he launched his brand, what some of the sticking points and challenges have been, and what some of the successes have been. So Sam started out screen printing blank t-shirts. Very simple way to enter the market, very low price point overhead, low inventory investment. And he really just pounded the pavement by going to boutiques and getting his product into stores on consignment. Uh, Over the years, it grew and he went into production with cut and sew designs of his own. And that was a whole process in itself. Uh, He shares all of those experiences and lessons learned with us from what it was like to try to produce locally in Manhattan, New York City. Um, And when he realized that he wasn't quite meeting some of the price points that he needed to and had to take his production overseas. Over the years, Sam has really pushed hard to make his brand a success and he's done some really awesome things like putting on a rogue fashion show during the middle of men's fashion week and getting some great free press coverage from that and he shares exactly how he did that what he did and what the success was as well as some of the struggles and challenges with uh, having your own brand and being a uh, a small brand going into production he's currently waiting for some inventory to land that has been very very delayed um, but you know these are all sort of parts of the process and the learning experience of launching your own fashion brand so there's so many great insights in here that he shares from the production and the pricing and how he's funded everything down to you know his endeavors in distributing distributing and selling his product Um, he's done quite a bit of consignment and he talks us through you know what has worked and what hasn't worked and then how he sort of converted some of those consignment accounts to wholesale accounts and so much more so i'm gonna stop rambling on sam and let you guys hear directly from him in this interview but before we jump in i wanted to remind you guys really quickly of something that you may not be aware of so Successful Fashion Designer is a podcast, but we are also so much more than that. And I only started to realize that so many of you didn't even know this once you would reach out to me and you would say, oh my gosh, Heidi, I just discovered all these other amazing resources on your website. I had no idea all of this stuff existed. So I want to let you know, and sorry I didn't tell you sooner, that I have hundreds of free tutorials, templates, and books. And yes, they're all free on things like using Adobe Illustrator for fashion, how to create tech packs, freelancing, landing your dream job, and so much more. And not to brag, but people tell me all the time that they've learned more from my free resources than they did in all of fashion school. So here's what I did just for you as a podcast listener. I put together my best free content and 
I want to give it to you to help you get ahead in your fashion career. So here's what you can do. Take 30 seconds, hit pause right now in this episode, and go to SoHeidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email for instant access to my best free stuff. I will send it all to you right away. Again, that's so so Heidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email. As always, you can scroll down wherever you're listening to access the show notes and check out all the links and resources mentioned in this episode. And now let's jump into our interview with Sam. Welcome, Sam, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Um, Can you please start out by introducing yourself to everybody and letting us know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Sam Murkowski, and I'm the founder and creative director of a streetwear come ready-to-wear line called Manhattanites. Um, We are a New York City-based label, and we support other local New York businesses and sort of the idea of being a native New Yorker. Awesome. So take us back to the beginning. Where did all of this start? Like, where, what's, what is or isn't your background in fashion and how did, how did you kickstart everything with your brand? So it sort of came together like a little piecemeal over the years organically. Um, I was always really interested in fashion um, and in clothing. Uh, and when I was like middle school, early high school, I started taking apart vintage t-shirts and like remaking them for myself and my friends. Um, and throughout college, I, I like experimented with screen printing, um, and that's the name Manhattanites actually was developed in high school as sort of a joke. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it took a little bit more life in college. I, I started screen printing stuff, um, and but I, I was a theater major, and that was my main focus at the time. So. Um, it, I, I moved on basically, and after school, I, I and throughout college, I started working in luxury retail. And um, after doing that for like quite some time, I sort of felt like I needed another creative outlet. So I started making shirts again um, and giving them out to my friends under the name Manhattan Nights. Um, and there was just like a lot of positive reaction. Um, and the printer that I was using, um, was very encouraging. You know, he had seen, he sees so many people come through with ideas and thought that I really had something that, um, was cohesive and clever. Uh, and so I was just encouraged to move forward with it. And I eventually found some stores to take them on consignment and you know got some professional labels printed up and sewn in and that was sort of the beginning okay and when was that like where are we at in the timeline here so um i can i started making shirts again i think sometime in like 2014 and maybe by 2015 i had them in a store okay and how did you go about, so, so, so you found a screen printer and you got some labels and you started just sort of simple and small with some of the designs you said had gotten good feedback um, from some of your friends prior. And like, how did you even go about getting them in the, in the stores? Did you just like schlep around town and say, hey, will you carry this? I mean, 
basically, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, what I did was I targeted small boutiques that I thought would be, you know, where a target customer would be. And okay. the beginning, what I was making was super niche. It was plays on New York City private schools and oh, take, interesting. and taking that same sort of like twist sardonic humor and applying it to um you know more recognizable logos so I took the Nike logo of just do it and turned it into just don't I took Fila and turned it into fail um but in the very beginning it was these these prep school puns, and then Upper Best Side, which is a spin on Upper West Side. <laughs> so I, you know, I went and found stores where I, I knew there would be customers that yeah. would get that and that the, the stores would be small enough that I would be able to reach someone within the store itself that I could get face-to-face, -face, you know, with the product. Okay. Because it's, you know, it's a lot harder to chase down people when you're dealing with like a big corporate company and having to call, you know, get the email, call yeah. the office when you could actually get your, you know, the product in the hand of someone that's, you know, can make decisions. It's a lot easier. I mean, I, that's what I found at least. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did in the beginning. And then, like I said, I, I was realized that that idea was a little bit too niche. Um, so I decided to take that same principle and apply it to graphics that people would, you know, be were graphics that were more recognizable to a larger audience. Um, and then once I did that, I applied, I did the same thing. I went and found other small boutiques within New York that I thought it would do well with and that I could get, um, you know, get face-to-face -face meeting with and, um, Slowly, I, you know, I developed it into to five or six accounts within New York and a couple accounts in Boston and um, one in Indonesia. Um, pretty much all by just, you know, um, knocking on doors. Okay. I love that. Um, and how were you funding most of this? Were you just like, you were saving your own money and, and investing that or... Yeah, so I Airbnb my apartment for the first <laughs> year, um, and that provided me a lot of the funding. And, and where then, did you stay with friends? So I, I have the luxury of growing up in New York, so I would go and stay with my parents. Oh, um, gotcha. Okay. And then eventually when my building caught wind of what I was doing and wouldn't let me renew my lease, <laughs> um, I moved home in order to be able to... Um, put all of my extra funds into the company. Okay. Um, and so back and forth, I, like when I started, I was still working in retail. I like left, you know, to focus on like getting it off the ground, went back to retail because I needed more money, like left to, you know, focus getting it more off the ground. So there was definitely a lot of back and forth. Okay. Um, and then when I ended up landing back at home, I like, got into a whole different other like side hustle to keep it going. Okay. And were you getting any inspiration um, from the customers that you were interacting with as you were working in retail to sort of implement into Manhattan Nights? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, you know, it, it sort of all came together like organically and slowly. Um, I definitely had an idea when I was starting Manhattan Nights of what, when it transitioned into cut and sew, like what that would look like. 
And that came from my experience working in luxury retail, especially in the past, well, you know, the last few years that I was doing it where, you know, I think the market has, has changed a lot. And I think what people really want is like super nice stuff that's very comfortable and easy to wear, mm-hmm. um, but it's also made extremely well. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, um, like I, I wanted to apply the difference I saw in the way that a garment was constructed, you know, properly versus something that was put together very quickly, which you can easily tell when it's like a dress or, you know, suiting. It's not always so easy to tell right off the bat when it's sweatpants and a sweatshirt. But when you get up and close as a customer and you're feeling it and you're seeing how well it's constructed, for me, I think that that's what a lot of people respond to. Or it's certainly the people that, that you know, I, I hope that those people respond to what I'm making that way. Yeah. And so, okay, so you started out with um, screen printed stuff, and was was the the were the garments that you were printing were those available in the market, like maybe American Apparel or you know something off the shelf, and then you were printing and then selling, or were you doing custom cut and sew of those pieces? No, I started printing blanks. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so, when were you able to sort of take the next big step to doing your own custom cut and sew? Because I think you know, starting starting with blanks is a very approachable, very low investment, right. low risk place. But then, you know, a lot of people might want to go to the next step, like you have. And so, what was that transition and process like? So that process definitely took a while between <laughs> when I wanted to start doing it and when I actually got it done. Yeah. Um, I would say at least a year. Okay. Um, so, you know, at first, I think my first approach was, uh, let me replace my, um, my blank garments with a cut and sew garment. Okay. Um, and... Every way I approached that, it just wasn't feasible. And mostly what I was at this point, my biggest seller were pullover hoodies. Okay. Um, so I, I couldn't figure out a way to make it cheaper um, the way that I would want it to be made. Um, so I decided that, you know... And that's when I, when I say that it came together sort of piecemeal organically, that's sort of when I went back to that original idea of like, okay, you know, if, if I'm not going to make it cheaper, then I'm going to make exactly what I wanted to make from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I came up with a six piece capsule collection, which is basically like the shapes and and initial concept of like the, you know, the codes that I wanted to use, um, going forward. And that, and that process took about, I would say six months from ideation to, you know, when we did, um, when we showed it, which was like a day after we like got the last <laughs> stitch in. Yeah. And so did you, and you said, this is all made in New York. Yeah. So all at this point, everything, my 
whole shtick was that everything needed to be made in New York City. Okay. Um, because, I, you know, part of the idea is that I, as a New Yorker, really want to support small New York local businesses. I hate seeing New York get, like, eaten up by Chase Banks and <laughs> Zara stores. Yeah. Um, and it's really sad for me to see how much the city has changed in that way. Um, so it just is. It was important to me from the beginning that part of the business model be supporting New York local New York businesses as much as I can. I've realized, you know, that in order to do that in a major way, hopefully in the future, I have to compromise a little bit now. But um, that's something that is really important to me and has been since the beginning. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to find those? factories and the suppliers and like what some of the challenges were with that because I know that you know producing locally or stateside or in Manhattan um, can be expensive but maybe you get lower minimums and you have direct contact right. with your supplier they're like down the street they're not across the world in a different time zone so can you talk a little bit about what that process was like and and some of the hurdles you went through and what you learned yeah absolutely so of course, in the beginning, I had literally, like, no idea, you know, where to even start. Yeah. Um, I eventually found a... Uh, oh, I, I found a website called Maker's Row, mm -hmm. which is basically, um, you know, it, it provides both makers and creators, you know, a way to connect with each other. You can, you know make it as local or not local as you want. But I think it's all in America. Um, I mean, again, in, in addition to the being made in New York thing, it was important for me to be able to be very hands-on in the process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wanted to make sure it was as, as local and, and convenient for me to, to be a part of as possible. Um, and I, I looked at a couple different companies. I had a couple different conversations. And um, I, I ended up you know, choosing what was probably the most expensive option, but just it felt like the best gel of of people that understood exactly what I was envisioning. Um, and I literally went with like I had cut up a sweatshirt and like butchered it together, like sewn it, you know, in the most Frankenstein way. <laughs> um, and you know, they're just like, I, they, they immediately understood what I was talking about. Like, we gelled right away. And so, um, and I just felt like, like, they were, you know, um, on point with my aesthetic. So, that's how I came to that decision. And then, from there, um, they helped, like, guide me through the process, basically. Um of going and getting the fabric and making the patterns and, um, you know, all the construction and, and et cetera. Yeah. And so, um, so it sounds like you literally just made a really crude prototype and just shopped it around and like set up appointments and went and saw these suppliers and found the one that you felt good with. And then it, it sounds like they worked out fairly well for you and walked you through the process. What was the whole experience of getting the first samples done and, and then ultimately getting into production? What was that like? 
Right. Well, actually, I should differentiate that I, there are there's many options on that on that site, and that I, I met with both factories directly and with agencies that are a little bit more hands on. Mm-hmm. And I I ended up picking someone who was like sort of in between. It was okay. like I was very hands on, but they also, um, you know, it was more than just me going and dropping off my like freak sample with a factory (laughs) which is an option and certainly it's possible to do it less expensively that way um but to get back to your other question um it was making the samples was you know it's um super rewarding and, and also super challenging yeah um like i said i had you know i came in with sort of a shape that um i had in mind and the first task was really to go out and find the fabric that we were going to use. And the first things I was making, I was going to do the pullover hoodie was the first piece mm-hmm. um, I had envisioned just because that was what I was selling the most, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I figured that was the first piece to elevate. Yeah, very smart. Um, so, so, you know, when I, when I was out, I went to a couple different fabric shows um, which, you know, I'm here in New York, so that was pretty easy to get to. Um, there's Premier Vision and um, a couple other ones. So it was sort of when I was walking around the shows, just sort of like thinking about, you know, again, like going back through my head of all of these different like little cues throughout my life and like what what is the whole, you know, what does Manhattan Nights look like as we transition from like printing these like quirky graphics to doing a cut and sew collection. Like how am I translating that entire idea over and conveying it without really using graphics? Um, And so I sort of came back to this idea of when I started to cut, you know, my friend's shirts apart and, you know, have them put back together. Like I would add zippers. And so I came up with this whole idea of, of taking apart your gym sweatshirt and like sewing it back together in a way that would like look cool in 20, this was, I guess, 2017, I think. Yeah. Um, so that's where I, the, the, like the shape, the, like the full shape sort of formed in my head. Um, and from there, you know, in a combination of like sketching it out and, and describing it, I worked with, um, the pattern makers and seamstresses uh, to make that first piece. And then we sort of took the codes from that piece and applied it to making the other um, pieces. Okay. And um, at this point, what were your thoughts on sort of sales and distribution? Were you planning to keep or were you still working with the, some of those boutiques, and did you conti- did you plan to continue with that, or were you thinking more direct to consumer route, or or where are you at this time in in terms of you know getting these new pieces out into the market? Right. So I'm you know a year and a half out from you know that initial getting those three pieces you know out to the world. I mean, mm-hmm. sorry, those three looks of the six pieces. Okay. Um, and that part has been the hardest transition because uh, the the price point is um, 
quite a jump. And like at the end of the day, when I, you know, I, I sort of went into making those sample pieces after initially figuring out that, you know, there was no way I was going to make it for cheaper. I was sort of was just like, well, fuck it. I'm going to make it, you know, better. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. going to make it perfectly. So I picked like, you know, the finest like Japanese cotton. And, you know, uh, I decided that I wanted every, you know, seam to be sewn down. Um, and, you know, and the hardware, and, you know, at the end of the day, it was, the price was like, you know, astronomically higher than what I was currently selling at. Um, so that was the first major setback. And I sort of, you know, realized quickly that I wasn't going to be able to parlay these same pieces into these same stores. Right. Um, and that I would either need to do it, if I was going to do it this way, I would either need to do it direct to customer so that I could cut those prices in half or that, you know, I would have to get a major distributor that would be ordering enough that I could make it, you know, get the, the price per unit down. Okay. Um, so, you know, while dealing with that, I, I continued to sell with the boutiques. I mean, the, the advantage of using blanks is that you have a very high, um, you have a high, very high margin. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was able to keep me afloat while I was still investing in the cut and sew stuff. Okay. Um, and there were also things I did, you know, that I, I elevated the, um, the blanks by putting in, you know, woven labels, adding cord stops, um, adding hang tags. So, you know, I, there were ways that I, I made it feel like a higher end product um, and that the boutiques were able to justify, you know, a little bit more of a, uh, a higher price point. Gotcha. Um, and, and, you know, the quality of the vinyl or the screen print you use is also super important. Um, but anyway, getting back to the cuttings of stuff, it, uh, it has been a hard transition to try to move the brand from a lower price point to a higher price point. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, uh, I have multiple questions on that, but, um, my first one is sort of the the production so you you know you talked about the sampling process and that obviously takes time um and you were really focused on making it perfect and sort of paying attention to all the details you know what did what did it look like to or i don't even know if you're there yet but like actually order production like what were the minimums and you know how did you fund that because that's a whole different investment than samples or screen printed blanks are you there yet Right. So I actually just went into product. I not just went. I'm I'm waiting now on my first production that I've run on oh. the Cut and Sew collection. That's a really exciting uh, moment. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually it was supposed to it was supposed to be here a couple months ago at this point. Oh, okay, wait, we're gonna talk about this because this yeah. is a very common I hear that sentence a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um Tell us about I'll, it. Knock on wood, it'll be here in a couple weeks. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't even know where to start on that end. <laughs> um, so eventually I got, I, I produced another full 
collection um, and presented it after the, I did those first initial pieces. Okay. Um, because I realized that if I was going to be, you know, in order to have a brand identity that was going to justify such a high price point, I needed, you know, more of a collection than just, um, you know, two sweatsuits and a, like a, a boxer t-shirt set. Yeah. Can you just really uh, quickly share, I, I mean, I, I see it on your website, but can you just let the listeners know what, what are your price ranges here so we have an idea of what you're referencing? Well, as we're going to market now, we, we're down, the the most basic hoodie from the Cut and Sew collection, I think, is around $250. Okay, at, this, at this point, when I'm still like working with these, with pricing as I was, you know, a year ago, I was still looking at the hoodie being like retail $750. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was yeah. quite a bit higher than the $250 it runs now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, so, I mean, it, it was a long road to get there. I initially, I decided that I needed to get a showroom, okay. um, that, you know, I just wasn't having any luck getting, um, getting into those more corporate, you know, and that more corporate, um, buyers i mean you know like I, I didn't have any idea how to get you know a hold of someone at barney's right. or neiman marcus right. or um you know and beyond that i didn't even know really where to to look um so i went about you know trying to find a showroom um which i eventually did and they also ran um they also run uh production so it and right off the bat their first commentary to me was that the price you know my pricing as it was was just unreasonable for a um you know an emerging brand and that was the 750 for a hoodie yeah okay gotcha um I mean, at that point, I think I had, I'd, you know, eaten a little bit of my profits out and like dropped it, you know, somewhat to make it a bit more reasonable, but it, it was still very expensive. Okay. I mean, in a lot of like, I went, you know, in making the samples, I really like didn't, um, I didn't consider the cost of production at all. Oh yeah. That's, that's a mistake I hear a lot or sort of a yeah. learning lesson. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was sort of stubborn. Like, I, I mean, I, I considered it in my head, like I knew what I was getting into, but yeah. I sort of was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to make exactly what I want to make yeah. the way that I want to make it. Um, so, you know, like I, I made a custom plaid and like had it printed on, on organza and, you know, like that, the fabric itself was $75 a yard. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. Okay. It adds up very quickly. <laughs> right. Um, so... Yeah, like everything was pretty much Japanese cotton, um, you know, like Italian leather, you know, like Italian, like, like this Italian vinyl plastic material. Um, so it was very expensive. And their, their, their first recommendation to me was that, you know, I, I had to make it abroad if I want to make these pieces and make it for a little bit cheaper so that I could sell it for cheaper. Okay. And, you know, I, I mean, that was a battle that I <laughs> went through, you know, back and forth for, you know, 
quite some time. I mean, even before they had said that to me, just because you know, on the one hand, it was so important to me that it be made in New York. Yeah. And on the other hand, I was like, well, if it's not going to be made at all, if I don't make it in New York, then what's the point? Yeah. You know, um, like better it to be made somewhere than to not be made at all. Um, so, you know, I agreed to that. And then eventually we got, um, we got a couple small orders, um, and I ordered inventory based on that. Okay. Um, Wait, hold on. So, so yeah. okay. So you. Sorry. No, no, no. I tend to jump around a lot. So no, no, no. It's okay. But I'm like, oh wait, I want to like hear more about this one part. Um, so you you went from let's say a seven hundred fifty dollar hoodie to a two hundred fifty dollar hoodie by moving production out of New York. Is that what I heard? Yeah. I Where'd mean, you go? I made I made some compromises. It's okay. It's made abroad. Um, And, you know, like I had to make a couple, you know, like not every scene could be exactly how I wanted it to be. (laughs) Yeah. It looks exactly the same from the outside. You know, it still looks great from the inside. Yeah. It doesn't look exactly the same. Um, But, and I mean, there were other things I did to to make it a little bit, um, to make it the price drop a little bit. Like the, the, um, I sort of combined a couple of the different individual hoodie styles I had made for the different, um, I've, I've had, uh, four collections, three collections now, plus that initial capsule. Okay. Um, so I produced stuff from one, from the capsule one and two, and I combined sort of the, all the different variations on the hoodie into just like two variations. Okay. So that, that way it was, you know, a higher, um, a higher unit number, just more broken down by colorway and gotcha. not so, so many specific. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so then you so, said you got some orders. So you, so at this point you're still just having samples made and you, you join forces with the showroom, get the price down. And then through that, you got some retail orders at which time you go into production. Is that right? I mean, yes and no. The okay. truth is, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, we got some consignment based orders. Um, okay. one of them is amazing. Um, the fluid project, um, which I'm, we're super excited about. Um, they actually have all the merchant right now because you know we were hoping to have the inventory in there by this past fashion week, um, and our show was going to be by you know partially by now where now yeah, um, but you know the inventory didn't arrive, unfortunately. Um, so sorry, I got a little bit uh, sidetracked. Um, and then there's another big consignment placed order, which I'm not a hundred percent on. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with consignment? Cause I've heard, um, varying stories as right. far as like, what, it, what is it like? How good or bad it is? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So in the beginning, like when I was first getting my stuff, those, like those first pieces into stores, I right off the bat offered consignment because I knew that, you know, from, from working in the retail world, you know, that 
there's, you know, it's zero basic um, risk right. for the stores to take on consignment. Right. So that, that softened the deal um, a lot and uh, helped me get into those stores. And then once I was in it, once it was selling is when I would switch those accounts over to being, um, you know, to being wholesale. And I would do that by, you know, offering them, uh, you know, the, a wholesale percentage versus a 50-50 consignment percentage. Um, but obviously the advantage to me was that money up front and, you know, in, um, in big chunks. Right. Um, so, you know, doing consignment when you're ordering cut and sew is not necessarily the most ideal when I'm <laughs> have, making all this stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, like I did it once the other way, like I, you know, I have to have faith that I could do it again this way. I mean, you know, you know, at this price point, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I say if you have, if you have the stuff or if it's, you know, not, um, terribly expensive for you to making or trying to, you know, get out there doing consignment is like, you know, a great way to go. I just do it locally. Don't, don't send your stuff over somewhere you know, <laughs> far away on consignment. Yeah. Um, so this first round of production that you're um, you're in the middle of, you funded that yourself, but you have some orders that are consignment based. So the stores will take that product once it arrives, and then depending on what sells, you'll collect from that. Yeah, basically. Okay. Was there a so big thing I missed, or? No, no, no. Okay. That's, yeah, that's it. I I had to front the money for the production. Yeah. Um, and I have to just hope and pray that it sells through. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that was like a risk that, you know, at this point I, I had to take. Yeah. So, and it, I mean, to do it for the Fluid Project was worth it for me because I figured, you know, that it was a very on brand and um, it's a great location. So at the very I, you know, I feel like it helps, you know, um, place my brand in the right, right place. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and I know we're like super jumping around here, but, um, you made the comment earlier that you, you know, uh, you had some hoodies, but you were like, okay, I need more than just hoodies to sort of present this as a collection. Um, right. and so you made some other pieces and you said you sort of, you presented that. What did you mean by that? Did you like do some fashion weeks or were you, you just put together, um, sort of some line sheet presentations and get those out to the showrooms or, you know, how were you actually showing this and, and getting the word out there and talking to people about your brand during that stage? Um, okay. So the first, the first capsule, um, collection, which was those, those, uh, six pieces, the three looks mm -hmm. I did like a rogue show, um, during men's fashion week, uh, I pulled up the models in uh, like a vintage Cadillac in front of the Cadillac house, like right before another show. Yes. And then, <laughs> and then I had it mixed in with some of the, you know, some of the models were wearing the merch. Um, 
So I was just trying to make a splash. And actually, that that was a great experience because uh, it got featured on the New York Times Instagram. Which oh, wow. Ended, yeah, which ended up bringing me um, a couple of wholesale accounts So for the merch, at least. Um, so that was awesome. Okay, and wait. So talk a little bit about that. So you just you found some models. You put your clothes on them. You got a, you said, you said a vintage Cadillac, and you just pulled up in front of when you know, knew another show was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, I well, <laughs> the Cadillac House had just opened, I think, and so like there were like a bunch of shows going on there for the first time. Yeah, that that season, and I happened to, <laughs> to own um, through my family a vintage Cadillac. Oh my so god! I sort of like had this idea, like you know, what would be funnier than having these models like in this outrageous Cadillac, yeah. like in front of the. Um, in front of the Cadillac house. So that's what I did. And I, I, I actually, when this. I was driving the car back out of the city, it like literally caught fire. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> so, so I got it done just in time. Oh God. Okay, wait. So you, you pull up in front of the Cadillac house where there's other shows about to begin and did like the models just get out and sort of do like a little runway on the sidewalk or like, cause you said yeah, you got exactly. orders. Okay. And, and then what, you just started talking to people or? Yeah, there were, I mean, there were a bunch of, um, you know, I mean, there were, there was press there because they're there for like sure. the show that's happening at the Cadillac house. Right. Um, so they just started picking up on it. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, love I mean, this. but pretty much exactly what you said. The models got out and started walking up and down the street and like posing on. The, I mean, I had my own photographer to like initiate the Taking frenzy. Pictures. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I have to say that that was, you know, the least planned of all the presentations I've done, and probably the most successful. Oh my god! I mean, of course so, it works out that way. But I yeah, love yeah. how you just like, well, shit. I'm just gonna go out there and put it out there the only way right. I can. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of the other presentations you did? So um, from there, like I said, I developed, I, I designed a full, um, I think it was like 12 looks we did the next for that first, what we call semester one. Um, so for that, I, found um, someone to help me with like production and PR and they got a space donated. Um, I mean, they were great at getting a bunch of stuff donated um, so that we could put on a full presentation Okay. Um, in this, like it was the, the unfinished um penthouse space of like a new development building oh cool okay yeah it yeah. looked really really cool i bet I, yeah how'd you get people there how'd you get people to come so that was a little bit more of a challenge <laughs> yes right filling seats <laughs> yeah so i mean that's what i will say about presentations is it's a little bit anticlimactic especially mm -hmm. the idea is that you're not you know you're less competition with the big boys because you're giving you know editors and stylists um, you know, and press the a larger chunk of time to come by and come, you know, see the clothing up front. Um, but it's a little bit harder to, I mean, at least I've found to create like a get a, you know enough people in there that it feels like you know big buzz at the same time. I mean, that, I guess that time it did. 
Um, but I mean, it, yeah, it's hard. I forget what your what your initial question was. I, it was really just like, how did you get people to show up to this? Oh, I, I mean, I just you know invited the people that I knew and I um, had some a little bit of of donated PR help okay, that gotcha. invited some people. Okay, but I mean, it, you know, it was it's not like I got some huge Vogue article out of it, sure. like. Um, but it was definitely, you know, a step in the right direction. Yeah. And, um, you know, the important part was ma- is making the clothes. You know, I think one of the things I've learned is the presentation or, you know, the participation in Fashion Week isn't necessarily as important as, you know, I've sort of, like, felt this pressure that, like, I like, need to, like, do something. Yeah. But, you know. And so, okay, so you you did these presentations, sometimes DIY, sometimes super rogue, um, and working with the showroom, and you get some orders, and so you're going into production, which you're funding yourself, and um, you said it was supposed to come in a couple months ago, and you're still waiting on it. Can you talk a little bit about what that has been like and what and why what the delays are and why they're happening and how that has felt because i know this happens to a lot of people (laughs) so you're not alone (laughs) yeah um well i will say so this was like my worst fear when i was initially like making you know deciding to make cuttings of stuff and you know part of the big reason i was so fixated on making it so locally so that i could sit there and like manage everything yeah um but I like, you know, had to take a leap of faith. I didn't, I guess I didn't have to. <laughs> what I did was take, took a leap of faith. Yeah. Um, feeling like that, you know, the showroom has a vested interest in getting it there. You know, they're running the production. They have a vested interest in getting it there, you know, on time as a showroom. So... You know, I, I did have to put a lot of trust, um, and it's been very frustrating that it hasn't happened exactly um, how I've wanted it to. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have details of like why it's taken longer than it has, or why it's been so, so, so much longer. Um, just that it has. <laughs> oh, so you, you can't even seem to get answers or? Yeah. I, I don't want to like disparage anyone. Sure. So, totally um, fair. But I don't, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm hoping it arrives soon. Yeah. And, but, you know, I mean, this is, it's a risk when you do that. Yeah. Um, and I, if, if you're the kind of person that likes to be very in control of everything, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's definitely certainly something to be aware of. Um, I mean, and now, you know, like, and I get all the time emails now from different factories in Everywhere, you know, Pakistan, L.A., China, all the time about producing stuff for the, the um, what we call the cease and desist collection now, which is what was initially all printed on blanks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and even with that, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know that I want to go that route because, um, I, it's, you know, it's almost easier to just have, be able to, to go in somewhere and see exactly how much is done, what's being done, what you can do to like get it done faster. Mm-hmm. So you made the comment about like someone who likes to be in control, which from the sounds of, of some of the things you've said, I, I feel like you are that person, which totally fair. I am absolutely that person as well, like to a ridiculous extent. Um, so do you feel that maybe like you've given up some of that control in certain decisions you've made in terms of how to sell and how to produce the collection? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, sometimes, I mean, in, in certain cases, give, you know, giving up control can be good. Yeah. Sometimes you need to listen to other people. Yeah. Um, and I can be very stubborn. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's important to, you know, surround yourself with people that, um, you know, you, whose advice you really can trust. And uh, like when I, you know, going back to finding um, the agency that I developed my cut and sew collection with, which is Acme NYC, um, by the way, and they, they have their own factory um, in, in Manhattan as well. Okay, cool. Um, but, you know, like they, you know, sometimes they would be like, you, you can't, like, you just can't do it this way. Like, it's just <laughs> not going to look right. And there are sometimes where, like, I would insist and just be like, listen, just do it. Like, you know, I'm paying for it. If it comes out fucked up, like, it's on my, you know, it's on my head. And I'd be 100% right. And there were times, you know, where I would be wrong. And, I, you know, they would. So it's in, important to have good people around you like that whose um, opinion you can feel like is not only great, but also in your best interest 100% of the time, yeah. which is hard. I it mean, is hard. That, that's very hard to find. So when yes. you find it, it's worth the price tag, in my opinion. Yes. I'm really glad you said that because it is really hard. It's very easy to find a factory who is going to convince you to cut corners and make things really cheaply, and a whole slew of things can happen. Right. But, um, you know, when you find that person, like you said, who sort of connects with your vision and you can build that rapport even if it's more, it's worth that, sac- that you know, financial investment right? to have that. Um, so that's amazing. Um, so what are you, what's going on in the meantime while you're waiting for production? So, you know, we're, we've, we um, just showed our semester three um, this past fashion week. Yeah. Um, so we're now, you know, pitching that out. Um, for it, it delivers for fall, winter. I always get confused with the. the I know the dates the are so far out. Yeah, <laughs> but so that's what we're you know we're sending out line sheets of that along with some of the um, the sweatsuit pieces, which you know are just carryover. Yeah, sort of some um, of your basic stock pieces you always have. Yeah, I mean yeah. I designed the collection from you know from the get-go is sort of like an evolution so it's not like very seasonal Mm -hmm. because i just that was another uh, another like um takeaway from working in retail is that like people don't want to spend a lot of money on something that's gonna be i mean some people do but 
a lot of people don't want to spend money on something that's going to be so specific to one designer one season. Yeah. You know, like you don't, I don't want to walk around necessarily and have someone be like, oh, like that's the Dior top from like, you know, spring, summer 18. Like that's just, you know, that's not what like my, my brand at least is necessarily about. Um, so I, it was important to me that it like all flowed together and mm -hmm. that nothing was, you know, each season has a little bit of its own theme, but it's all the pieces can go together from, you know, um, one season to the next. And, you know, by piece, they might be a little bit more seasonal, but none of the collections have really been so seasonally specific. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that vers versatility is important and not like pigeonhole yourself too tightly. Right. Gotcha. And I mean, and no one is shopping, you know, for their entire spring wardrobe no. in February anymore. It's no. just like not how it works. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, you know, by the time, I mean, that was often the experience as a salesperson is that like, by the time you have people coming in to buy their spring, summer clothing, it's like already on sale, yeah. you know? Yeah. So you have to pay attention to the customer and it sounds like that retail experience has been really valuable. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, Sam, this has been really fun to chat with you. Um, can you please yeah. let everybody know where they can find you online and learn more about your brand? Yeah, absolutely. So our Instagram is at Manhattanites, which is spelled Manhattan, K-N-I-G-H-T-S. Yep. Um, and the website is www.manhattanites.com. And if you want to check me out personally, I'm at Smirkoff, S-M-U-R-K-O-F-F. -F. Okay, awesome. And I will finish by asking you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the interview. And that is, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? Oh, that's a good one. Um, how difficult it is doing it alone mm -hmm. versus doing it, you know, like starting out with like a collective. Um, and because that for me has been like the biggest challenge is like, you know, having to depend on like my own soul, like instincts and gut feelings about things um and you know my my own experience solely yeah so yeah and what do you mean by a collective like just doing it with some friends or actually like some type of fashion co-op or well i mean i think that a lot of people who start you know adjacent brands you know start them as like a group of friends or like you know a couple of people like in my experience, the people I've met who are doing adjacent things are, it's more than just like one person being at the like epicenter of it. Gotcha. <laughs> um, which is, I mean, it's, it's definitely smarter to do it that way. You get to uh, make all the, you get to have all the control. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But sometimes it's nice to get input from other people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us and sharing all these amazing insights with the listeners. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you so much to each and every one of you for listening. I really do appreciate it. And thank you so much to my husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech and editing and makes the show possible, as well as my right-hand SFD team member, Saya, who makes sure that each episode gets published and delivered to you on time. I couldn't do any of this without all of your help. As a quick reminder, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to remind you one more time that Successful Fashion Designer is way more than just a podcast. And I want to make sure that you access those free resources that I distribute and give away beyond what you hear on iTunes or wherever you're listening. So for instant access to my best free resources on getting ahead in the fashion industry, you can head on over to soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. And I will send you all my best stuff absolutely free. Last, if you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes by scrolling down wherever you're listening. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer Podcast episode.